0: Let me ask you to open up to the book of Exodus and chapter 15. Book of Exodus and chapter 15. As you're turning there, let me say a word about tonight. Um, Tonight at 6 p.m., we're going to begin a brief sermon series, only three sermons, uh, but dealing with the question of the depressed Christian. Uh, Is it possible for true believers in Christ to be depressed? And if so, what does the Bible say for what we do in that situation? Or what if we're caring for someone whom we love who's depressed? How do we know how to relate to them? And uh, I've been greatly helped in recent days learning about that subject. And so I'm looking forward to uh, sharing some of what I've learned uh, tonight. Uh, Let me encourage you to bring a notebook and pencil when you come because you'll want to take notes uh, as we go through it. I think it's a really, really good uh, material that we'll get to work through tonight. This morning, we come to our final message in our study of Exodus 1 through 15. Um, we're not going to complete the end of, of chapter 15 because our goal has simply been to get to the other side of the Red Sea and we're going to end with this song of praise, celebrating what God has done. And then when we come back to Exodus sometime from now, uh, we'll pick up right here in Exodus 15 uh, with what happens on the other side of the Red Sea. But for now, our series is is coming to... An end, for those keeping count, it was, this is Sermon 46, so uh, 46 messages uh, on Exodus 1-15, through 15, and I'm quite proud of myself that we were able to do it in 46 messages. I know that sounds crazy, but uh, there you go. Um, what, what have we seen? We, we, we've seen God take the family of one man, Jacob, and multiply that family greatly. Um, We've seen those descendants of Jacob become so numerous that the Egyptians began to be afraid of them and therefore made them their slaves. Uh, We saw the people of Israel cry out to God for deliverance. They, They begged God to set them free from their slavery to Egypt. And we've been learning together about the leader that God raised up to set His people free. And by the time we get to Exodus 15, what a life Moses has already lived just up to this point. And there's much more to go. But just to this point, what a life this man Moses has lived. Uh, He was born at a time when the Israelite males that were born were supposed to be drowned in the Nile River. And he was saved by his mother who protected him. And later placed in a basket in the river and and was found and adopted by, of all people, the daughter of Pharaoh. He was given the best education available in his day. He was given training and, and the best methods of war available in his day. And then he forsook the luxury and the privileges of being one of Pharaoh's household. And he identified with his suffering people, the people of Israel. And at age 40, failing in his first attempt to lead the people of Israel, God made him a shepherd for the next 40 years in the land of Midian. So from age 40 to age 80, Moses was tending sheep under the shadow of Mount Sinai. And it was at Sinai that God suddenly appeared to him in a burning bush and gave him his calling. And we saw Moses return to Israel with the help of his brother Aaron, He began to lead the people of Israel. But ultimately it was not Moses that set the people of Israel free. It was their God. It was God who set them free through ten plagues that he brought upon Egypt. And we saw water turn to blood and frogs all in people's houses and insects attacking the land and boils on people's skin and hail falling from the sky. We saw God strike down the firstborn male sons of Egypt, and last week, just when it looked like Israel was pinned in and about to be recaptured by the Egyptians, we saw God split the Red Sea and He saved his people, and he brought judgment upon six hundred chariots of Pharaoh. Mount Herman, how do we respond? When God has done something great for us? What is the appropriate reaction when God has exercised his mighty right hand on our behalf? Well, one way that God's people have responded both in scripture times and throughout history has been through singing. And what we have here in Exodus 15 is a song of praise unto God. For all that he has done to save his people. And we should not be surprised that right after the Great Red Sea event, we find a song. Because every time we've encountered a major moment in the book of Genesis and now in the book of Exodus, a pivotal moment of special significance, Moses has marked that moment with a song. Most of Genesis and Exodus are written in prose, but there are moments when Moses turns to poetry. And when he does this, it's typically because something particularly important has either just happened or is happening. So Genesis 1, we read of the creation of the world, and it's written in prose. And then God gets to that climactic moment when he's going to finish off his creation and he creates man. And when God creates man, suddenly Moses goes from prose to poetry. And in your English Bible, you know it's poetry because the whole verse is indented. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. It's a song. It's a song that, that, that Moses writes to Mark, a big moment. And then it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God brings all of these animals to Adam, but, but none of the a- animals are a helper suitable for him. And so God puts Adam in a deep sleep, and he creates Eve from Adam, and he brings Eve to Adam. And what do we find? What does Adam do in the next passage? He sings. He marks the moment with a song. And Genesis works like that through the whole book. And you get to the end of the book and you have Jacob at the end of his life. And he's speaking these prophecies over each of his 12 sons. Some of the prophecies are positive. Some of the prophecies are negative. But every one of them is weighty. Speaking of what God will do through each tribe of Israel for the glory of His name. And they're given in poetry. They're given in song. As we come to Exodus, the same pattern continues. And here on the other side of the Red Sea, God's people having been delivered in an amazing way and 600 Egyptian charioteers having just been drowned, we find that this important moment is marked with a song. And Sometimes it's called the Song of Moses. Sometimes it's called the song of the sea, but it became a hymn, very important to the people of Israel. And when they celebrated the Passover each year, or when they went to redeem their firstborn sons at the temple, or when they just wanted to teach their children and their grandchildren what God had done for Israel years ago, decades ago, centuries ago, This was a song at their disposal to teach them what God had done. It is a song about the glory of God and about His great deeds. It is a song that was meant to be passed down for generations, even to our very day, that God's amazing work on behalf of His people would be known. And since it's a song, we're going to sing it together. No, I wish we could, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to read it. But it is a song, so as you're reading it, think about it as as being sung. And let's begin in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the peoples pass whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So what we have here is a song that Moses composed very soon after seeing what God had done at the Red Sea. And he taught this song to Israel by singing it himself. Miriam, his sister and Aaron's sister, helped teach this song to the women of Israel. Notice, by the way, that the same words that start the song back in verse 1 are also the first words of the song of Miriam in verse 21. So it's not actually two different songs. What we're being told here is that Moses taught this song to the people of Israel and then Miriam took took it upon herself with tambourine and dancing to help teach it to the women of Israel so that the women of Israel would learn and sing this same song. And instead of writing the same song twice, when it talks about Miriam, it just gives the first lines of the same song that Moses wrote. Now we're going to look at this hymn in a broad way and looking at it broadly i see four major truths in this song four major truths that are being taught and each one of these truths issues a call to you and to me and so my goal this morning is very simple i want to show you these four truths and i want to make sure we hear these four calls so here we go truth number one It is good for God's saved people to sing His praises. It is good for God's saved people to sing His praises. This is verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. And we're told in verse 1 that Moses and all of Israel sang this song. We're told in verse 20 that Miriam and all the women sang this song with tambourines and with dancing. And I absolutely love what Matthew Henry says about this. Uh, He's still my favorite commentator of all time. You say, Justin, if I could have one commentary on the Bible, who should it be? To this day, I still say it's Matthew Henry. He's just wonderful. But here's what he says. He says, those that were to hold their peace while the deliverance was in working, must not now hold their peace now that it has been wrought. The less that they had to do then, the more they have to do now. In other words, as we talked about last Sunday morning, the role of Israel in defeating the Egyptians was simply for them to fear not, stand firm, and watch. Because God was going to do all the work. And God did. God split the Red Sea. God blocked the Egyptians from the Israelites with His pillar of cloud so that the Egyptians could not attack until His timing was right. It was God who clogged up the wheels of the chariots, not the Israelites. And then when the charioteers sought to ride on dry ground across the sea, it was God who caused the waters of the sea to come crashing down upon them. Israel could not save themselves, and they did not save themselves. It was God in an amazing act of His power who saved His people. And now, though they weren't able to do anything to do to, in the work of salvation, Israel knows that they now have a duty upon them. And that duty is to give God the glory and the praise and the thanksgiving that He is due for having done so much for them. God did not create us to save ourselves. God created us that He might show the glory of His mercy and grace and that we might know the joy of being redeemed by Him and give Him the worship He is due. God loves to display His awesome attributes. God takes pleasure in our pleasure of seeing Him work on our behalf. And how do we express our pleasure? How do we express our gratitude to our God for saving us from an eternity in hell? I mean, how do you say thank you for that? Through song, through singing. It's one major way. Over and over and over again in the Bible we receive the same command sing to the Lord and again two Sundays in a row the singing here has been wonderful. Psalm ninety six two, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 98, one, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Psalm one hundred forty seven seven, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. And as we've seen before, this isn't just an Old Testament command. Both Ephesians and Colossians in the New Testament give us explicit commands that when we gather together, we are to sing praises to our God. I wonder, do we in this room have the heart of the psalmist? who said in Psalm 104, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. Modern technology has many wonderful benefits. But modern technology also comes with trade-offs. And one of the consequences of the invention of the radio and then records, and 8-tracks, and then cassette tapes, and then CDs, and then MP3s, and now streaming music. One of the trade-offs of that is that music has become, for our society, something you listen to and not something you do for a lot of people. But for most of history, people didn't have radios, and they didn't have CDs, and they didn't have iTunes. It wasn't that they had... At, at their disposal at any time, someone to sing for them, if you wanted music in your life, you sang. <laughs> Most people didn't have pianos in their homes, keyboards in their homes. What people have had for all of human history is the human voice. And music was part of family life and community life as, as people would gather together to sing. They would sing in the fields as they worked. They would sing in their homes as something to do for entertainment as families. There was no Xbox, right? What are you going to do for entertainment in your home? You sing together. They would gather together as congregations, and they would sing to the Lord, often unaccompanied, a cappella music. It was just singing. Other times, simple instruments were used like the tambourine, like the lyre in Bible times like a acoustic guitars in our own day. But the point of it is this. Music was a corporate activity. It was, it was part of the stuff of life, and, and everybody sang. It wasn't professionalized. That's what we've done in our day. We've professionalized music so that now we say, that person can sing, that person can't. That kind of talk would have seemed very strange to people. Of past centuries singing was a communal activity something that was good for for everyone's soul and then also for various reasons there are many men in our culture today who have this idea that if you sing and you sing out boldly as a man that that's somehow effeminate or unmanly as if real men don't sing but nothing could be further from what we see in the Bible In the Bible, the manliest of men were singers. Moses had to sing this song to the people of Israel for them to learn it. Moses was a warrior. Moses was a commander-in-chief. And Moses Moses was a minister of music. (laughs) He was a worship leader. David, yes, David was a poet. David was a psalmist. And he was a mighty warrior. The people saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. This is the David who slew Goliath. This is the David who took apart lions when they were coming against the sheep he was protecting. This was a real man. And in the Bible, real men sing. Don't try and take away David's man card because he was a singer. Have you ever torn a lion apart? Dare I suggest that it is fear of man, that it's actually cowardice that keeps many people from singing out boldly and lifting their voices up to God and giving Him the praise He deserves? So, the first thing I see in this song is a call for us to be a people who sing God's praises. It is a duty, it's a duty upon, it's not like an optional thing, it's a duty. Because God has commanded us explicitly to do it and because God is worthy of it and because He's done so much for us. We are obligated to sing God's praises because He gave His very Son for us. And He placed the wrath that we deserve upon the shoulders of His Son. And God has forgiven us our sins and He has made us His children and he has given us so many precious promises and one day we're going to see his face and we're going to know what heaven really is shame on us if we don't sing the praises of this god but it shouldn't simply be a duty it ought to also be our delight It ought to fill us with joy to raise our voices to sing to God and to sing to others of His awesome character and His awesome deeds. In fact, we ought to be thinking much less about the singing itself and much more about who we're singing to. We ought to get caught up in the lyrics of these songs. Oh, great God of our highest heaven, right? We we get caught up in the words so that... We see and we feel the glory of God in a way that we can't help but sing. And if it sounds awful, we don't care. Because God's worth it. We'll just say it's a shout, right? My singing may sound more like shouting, but He's worthy of my shouting. Let us shout to the Lord. So Mount Hermon made this church be known till the day that Jesus comes back as a church that sings mightily the praises of God because God inhabits the praises of His people. He draws close to people who humble themselves to lift up their voices in joyful praise. It's the first truth I see. Here's the second. And that truth is this. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a man of war. Did, Did you see how much of this psalm How much of this hymn is about God fighting for Israel and what He did against the Egyptians? And we're told explicitly in verse 3, though the whole song really encapsulates it, that our God is a man of war. He's a fighting God. He's a warrior God. Throughout history, nations have been judged first and foremost on their military power. Even today, when we talk about America being a superpower, while we may think about America's vast economy, we may think about America's technological advances, we may think about America's influence on other nations, but ultimately, we are a superpower in this world because we have the strongest military of all the nations of the earth. And if you take away our strong military... Everything else that we are becomes vulnerable and can be taken over by others. Military might is what makes a superpower. If we look back at the ancient times, nobody would have said, that Israel, that's a superpower. Oh, the military might of Israel. We're going to shake in our boots. We don't want to face Israel. No. People talk that way about Egypt. Israel didn't have a single chariot. Egypt had 600 of them. The military superpowers of the ancient world were the great empires. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, later the Greeks and and the Romans. Nobody would have even thought to put Israel on that list. Any scenario that had Israel fighting against Egypt or Assyria or Babylon It would have have seemed like David facing Goliath. Israel didn't appear to stand a chance. But Israel's God fought for Israel. And this is what made Israel supreme above all those other ancient nations. Israel's God was the true God, the creator God, the one who could put all other spiritual beings and all other nations in their place. Israel's might was in her God. Some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God, Israel's saying. It's the same with us. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the true Israel, the everlasting people of God. And frankly, in the world's eyes, the church of Jesus Christ looks pretty weak right now. In fact, there have been times in history when the church of Jesus Christ looked downright pathetic and laughable. And even right now in our own country, many are beginning to fear that Christians are losing their place in American culture and that consequences for following Jesus are about to be ratcheted up. Already, Christians are more mocked in our land than they have been since our nation was founded And then around the world, we see Christians being abused, driven from their homes, raped, murdered. The church of Jesus Christ does not look powerful in our day. And then you throw into this mix the fact that the devil himself, who is so much more powerful than any one of us or all of us put together, is out to get us. And this world is tempting us this world seeks to lure us away from christ in order to destroy us sometimes with subtle temptations sometimes with not so subtle forceful temptations and our own flesh sometimes comes against us so forcefully that to do the right thing seems almost impossible dear friends to put it bluntly as christians We are outmatched, we are outsized, and we are outwitted. The situation for us looks hopeless. Except for the fact that our God is a warrior God. And that our God is a God who fights for His people. He is our refuge, He is our fortress, and He is our champion that fights our battles. We are called to trust him, we are called to obey him, and we are, called, we are called to stand amazed as he defeats our enemies one by one and brings us safely into his glorious presence. The devil is no match for you when your God is by your side. And the world's best lures Lose their tempting power when your heart is caught up in the glory of God. When you see the face of Jesus, even with just the spiritual eyes of faith in this life, the things of earth grow strangely dim. And the greatest attacks of our flesh, no matter how powerful they may be, cannot change the fact that Jesus Christ now lives inside your heart and He will complete His work of ridding your soul of every vice and every sin that dwells within. Friends, when God is your God, the tables are turned and suddenly you have the upper hand. The victory has already been won. The tide turning battle has already been fought. The cross was D-Day and Jesus won. And now we already know how this war is going to end. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Mount Hermon, are you not glad that your God is a man of war? Are you not glad that your God is a warrior God? And by His power, He will bring you to a day when there will be no more war, but peace will reign forever and ever. Unbelievers, not quite as pretty for you to think about God as a warrior God. Because if you're still in your sin, If you're still rebelling against God, if you're refusing to surrender yourself to Christ, then you are still living as an enemy of God. And God didn't make Himself your enemy. You made yourself His enemy by transgressing His law. And when you hear the people of Israel sing, the Lord is a man of war, and you read what He did, the blast of His nostrils, the water piling up, floods standing up in a heap, the deeps congealing, you ought to tremble. Indeed, that's what I would say is the main call of the second truth. We all ought to tremble. We are called to tremble before this God. Christians should think about the mighty power of God and how He destroys His enemies. And we ought to tremble even as we worship and praise Him. We ought to thank Him that He wields His mighty sword for righteousness because we tremble at what He would do if He were an evil God. How glad we are he's a good God. But, unbelievers in this room, you should tremble for a different reason. You should tremble because this God's sword of righteousness is headed right for you. You should tremble and you should heed the call to run to Jesus Christ before it is too late. Because this God, who is a warrior God, is also a saving God. And he will save you if you will simply confess your sins. And run to Christ. Third truth. Third truth that we see in this song. It comes from probably the most well remembered verses of this song. Look at verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth, swallowed them. The truth I see here is that there is no God like God. There is no God like God. Don't stumble over the fact that the Bible talks about gods with a little g in our English translations, right? Don't stumble over the fact that the Bible says there are other gods in this world besides God. God. Because when the Bible speaks this way, it's not talking about as if all these other gods are equal with God. It's not. The Bible uses this word gods to simply to refer to spiritual beings. We've already seen that the gods worshipped by pagan cultures like the Egyptians are, told, are taught to us in, in Deuteronomy that they're actually demons being worshipped as gods. What the pagan peoples called gods were actually angels, spiritual beings, powerful beings, demonic beings that were worshiped as gods. And the Bible calls them gods. So when Moses sings, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, what he's saying is, There is no spiritual being that compares to God. Take the mightiest of the angels, take Michael, take Gabriel. They are amazing. The power of Gabriel, the power of of Michael is, is astounding. Or even take the power of the mightiest fallen angel himself, Satan. It's astounding power that he has. But it is nothing compared to the power of our God. There is a qualitative difference between the God of Israel and every other spiritual being. Who is like you? O Yahweh, Jehovah, among the gods, answer, no one. He is creator. They are creature. He is potter. They are clay. He is sovereign, and in his decrees, every thought, whim, and action, even of every angel, has already been fully decided the end of the day, they are chess pieces on His board and He is the chess master. When it comes to power, when it comes to sovereignty, when it comes to might, there is none who can compare with our God. He is majestic in holiness. Remember, holiness means being set apart, being being different, distinct. The Grand Canyon is majestic in holiness. That is, it is majestic and that there is no other place like it. You see it and in sheer awe you declare there is no other place like this. I have never seen anything like this before. You see it and you say, the photographs don't do it justice. You just have to see it to get it. And this is how God is majestic in holiness. He has a majesty that is all His alone. It is the majesty of being a God of wonders, a God of glory, greater, grander, qualitatively different from anything else in this world. Everything else is created. He is the fountain of all existence. As soon as we begin to try and describe God, we begin to get befuddled in our language. Words can't do Him justice. He is different from everything else. And He is awesome in glorious deeds. Literally, His deeds cause us to stand in awe. Frogs jumping around in your bedroom. That makes you stand in awe. Hell falling from the sky. Having been said it will happen at this time on this day to these people and not to these people. And it happens. That causes you to stand in awe. The waters of the Red Sea piling up like walls caused the people of Israel to stand in awe. And Mount Hermon, we have even greater reasons to stand in awe because God became man for us. And He lived a perfect life for us. And God bore His own righteous wrath on the cross in our place. God died How do you wrap your mind around that? And then he rose again. And even right now, Jesus Christ is interceding for you in heaven. And he's going to come again. And he's going to come again in a way that every eye shall see him. He's going to split the heavens. He's going to gather all peoples to himself. And a great separation is going to happen. It will be a day of all. It will be a day of wonder. Our God is a God of glorious, amazing deeds. Nothing Hollywood can produce comes close. My family had a Mission Impossible marathon this past week. Before we went and saw the latest movie and we watched Tom Cruise do those amazing stunts and you see him there in Dubai and he's doing these crazy things crawling way up on this building and swinging back and forth and barely hanging on and and in a sense your jaw drops like wow and then you remember he didn't really do it (laughs) it's fake our God really is authentic in his glorious deeds these aren't just stories he did it Our God is a God who does wonders, the verses say. We just read, right? Brad read for us, Jesus casting out demons. Jesus healed blind men and crippled people and He, he, he healed paralytics. He healed people who were, who were born blind and there was no cure for them. He raised people from the dead. Even the winds and the waves obeyed His voice. Jesus rose from the dead, giving death itself, its own death blow, so that we have the death of death and the death of Christ. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus Christ came to you and to me in our hardness of heart, in our anti-God spirit, and He caused us to be born again. He performed heart surgery on every one of us who was a Christian, and He gave us a new heart. Our God is a God of wonders. Church, if ever there was a people who had a reason to stand in awe of God, it is us right here. I would say this is a call to marvel. A call to marvel at our God. When was the last time you looked up at the night sky and just marveled? When was the last time you looked around the world it's, this happens to me sometimes. Even just riding down the road, and you'll just see something you've seen a thousand times, and you just stop and you just see it, almost like you're seeing it for the first time. It's a tree. I've seen a gazillion trees, but suddenly you see it. Like, isn't this thing weird? Isn't it amazing that this thing exists? Right? Just, just your hand. That this thing exists. Let us be a church that loves to marvel at the greatness of our God. We're going to close with this final truth. This final truth that we see here in this song. And it's this. God will bring his people into his sanctuary. God will bring his people into his sanctuary. Or if you want to make it clearer as far as understanding, God will bring his people into his presence. He will bring his people into Into his presence. The people of Israel sang their faith, sang their hope, sang their trust in God that he was going to bring them into his presence. Uh, Verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Look down at verse 17. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, Herman, we can rejoice to say that our God will bring us into his sanctuary. In one sense, he already has. The day you were saved, you were brought into the people of God, into God's church, into the sanctuary. Remember, now God's temple is not a building made with human hands. If you are a Christian, you are the temple of God. He has made you His sanctuary. And even more times than the New Testament says that we as individuals are temples of God, it says that we as the church are the sanctuary, the temple of God in which His presence dwells. You want something that will boggle your mind and cause you to stand in all. Almighty Creator God who is omnipresence dwells in you. But more than that, we are waiting for the day when we will see the fullness of God in heaven itself the true sanctuary, the true Eden, the true fullness of the presence of God is what we're waiting for. And this song is a call to hope. A call to hope. And remember in the Bible, hope isn't simply a wish. Oh, I really wish, wish that I could make it to heaven. I don't know if I'm going to make it to heaven or not. Maybe God will get me there. Maybe God will fail me. I'm just not sure. That's not hope in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is an eager expectation of something that God has guaranteed for us. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that day when you will be with the God that you love more than anything else in this world, and you will be with Him forever. Are you, dear friends, are you gaining strength for today by holding fast to that hope of what you know is coming to you tomorrow? Can you say, I can deal with anything God gives me today because I know what's ahead? I know where the journey ends for me. And God will not fail me, and I will have my prize. And He is the prize. Is Psalm 1715 regularly in your heart and mind? The psalmist says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Or Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, let us hear these truths. And let us heed these calls. Let us heed the call to sing praises to our God because He's worthy. Let us heed the call to tremble before Him because He's a warrior God. Let us heed the call to marvel at His greatness because there is none like Him. And let us heed the call to hope in our God because He will one day bring every person who trusts in Him into His glorious presence where there are pleasures forevermore